when we commit to the precepts, we undertake the training to purify body, speech, and mind at a certain level. These precepts, these voluntary trainings work if we give ourselves to this because we understand the benefit. If we don't understand the benefit, then you wave a stick over yourself. Now, you have to do this, you must do this. And if you don't, we get born again into being a someone who's trying to keep rules and we're back on the level of intellectual practice rather than practicing from an intuitive understanding of the benefits. The three kinds of training in this particular tradition are divided into morality, but morality is a loaded word. It might have some connotations that detract from the real gist of what that means. Really, it's cultivating virtue, purity. And that's at three levels. Of course, the level of action, conduct, the level of speech, and the level of thought. In daily life, we try to keep a certain level of acceptable conduct. But that's really not enough. Uh, What's acceptable socially may actually not be good for us. So therefore, these precepts give us the reflection on what is healthy for a human being in terms of virtuous conduct, in terms of cultivating and bringing to life this reservoir of goodness within us. So it's not to be a goody-goody. And it's not to gain approval from anyone. Oh, she's such a good Buddhist or a good person. These are just labels, just names. But to really dive into the depth of our own goodness and bring that to life through taking care in our actions, to live harmlessly. This can be called training in virtue. Then there are certain guidelines of how to do that, of course. Not killing, not killing any living creature. We don't kill human beings. Not physically. But now you see this training is on three levels. Body, speech, and mind. You may not kill a human being with your hands or with a weapon, but do you kill someone with speech, with a a, a harmful word, a spiteful or malicious outburst? Because we are unconscious of our inner trouble. We're conflicted. And when we meet sometimes in difficult conditions, we meet people that we'd rather not meet. And then there's a conflict, and then we might burst out and say, I hate you. Or maybe something milder. 
or maybe something worse. So then with the speech, we're throwing knives. We're tossing grenades. And they, they always come back to us. Then that person will react and you have a big explosion. Then there's resentment. And then you, you feel righteous. And we, we judge each other. They deserve, they shouldn't. And it goes on and on. And the mind spends a lot of time on that interaction. And that becomes one of the bricks in our emotional body. And it's forever there. There's like a hole in you somewhere. It's not a solid supporting brick. It's like a dissolving, disabling piece of you. It takes a lot of energy to keep that and carry it around. And this becomes part of our egoic makeup. Then we have to keep defending that position that we held against this person. So in the end, whatever we throw out, if we've been destructive in our actions and speech, we are then just holding on to some kind of a toxic substance. And it continues to leak. You know, the way uh, if you were carrying around some radioactive particle, it poisons you and it's invisible. You can't trace it. You can't measure it. Now, if that happens on the level of action and speech, well then, what does it tell you about thought? What's going on in the mind is equally powerful, if not more. And if we trace it all back, if we study our actions and speech, we begin to see that the roots of what we're doing are where? They're not out there. We might think that someone came in and was not nice to us, therefore we had to react. And it's their fault. Is it their fault? If we are within ourselves, not conflicted and well-trained, if we have the ability to restrain all the poisons and eliminate them from within, then we will never be led out, pulled out by what's happening around us, defeated, debilitated, distressed, disappointed, overwhelmed or destroyed by what's happening to us. That sounds impossible. If it was impossible, then the Buddha wouldn't have encouraged us to do it. Nor would any of the other great saints and sages that have walked this earth and that still walk this earth they wouldn't have and they wouldn't now encourage us in this direction because it is possible. But it takes a lot of training and practice. It's a whole lifetime project. It's a lifetime's project. Here, we're keeping silent and we're following 
a very refined level of virtuous conduct. There's very little opportunity here to harm anyone in conduct or in speech. But then the mind goes on with its business. That's a whole other level of virtue that we are trying to cultivate through this training. Through the inner journey. None of the eight precepts in and of themselves directly govern what the mind is doing. But they are essential, indispensable, vital supports, just like the pillars of this chapel hold up this wondrous roof. So our virtuous conduct and speech uphold us in our spiritual endeavor. And we can purify the mind. Now why do you want to purify the mind? You might ask. You don't see advertisements for this on the billboards as you drive along the Queensway, do you? Or 401 in Toronto? There's no advertisement that says, purify your mind, take Advent or whatever. (laughs) And this will purify your mind. This isn't what people do. So when you go back home from the retreat and people say, what were you doing over there? I was purifying my mind. Most of the people on this planet are not aware of the importance of purifying the mind. And purifying, when, when I talk about the mind, I mean the heart. I don't mean the brain, the circuitry, the physiological process. Here we're speaking about the process of the heart. The heart really governs us intuitively. The brain, of course, governs our intellectual processes and then beyond that there's the knowing mind the conscious mind which is not something that is measurable and it is this heart mind that needs the training you don't need to be a genius to do this if there's no ability to reflect on our experience it's very difficult to purify the mind, to have conscience, some sense of contemplating, an ability to look within, a certain amount of awareness and cognizance, ability to know things. And we, we have that. We're not debilitated in that way, hopefully. But we're debilitated in many other ways, at the level of the heart. Contemplate in your own life what debilitates, what is debilitating, what makes us feel suffocated, what's the problem, is there a problem? Just taste that, reflect on that. If you close your eyes and reflect for a minute, what is the first problem that comes up? There's a problem? Is it distress? 
This is a relationship, a job. I'm not talking about that you don't have the perfect life. But on the level of spiritual practice, that's really not the problem. What is the problem is our attitude, our connection, our relationship to what we think is a problem. It's not what's on the outside that's the problem. Nor is it the, the phenomena or the emotions, the feelings, the ways that we're perceiving the world or our belief system that's not the problem the problem is our attachment to what we think is true our attachment to the self that holds it all together our identification with the body and the mind and the me that this all is held by our attachment to that is a constantly self-renewing process otherwise there isn't a problem is there but this is a good opportunity during these next days however long you're here to contemplate that more deeply training ourselves to ask questions is very important to ask and not to try to answer by thinking because Thought will never free us from this bondage to self that we think we are, not knowing what we really are. So the first level of training in virtue comprises the external conduct and speech, and then the internal, what is in the heart-mind and how to train, how to retrain ourselves, or how to untrain our bad habits. It's much harder to deprogram than it is to begin from the beginning. When you have a young baby and you try to teach it something, it's so receptive, so interested, so curious, and so clear. That's the level of training in virtue. Concentration is the second stage of training or the second form of training that we're doing. We don't have the same breakdown as we do in conduct and speech with this level of training. Concentration applies more to the work of the heart, mind. If you'll notice, in general, we're very distracted. And so that does lead us out. It takes us out into busyness. Is there anyone here who's not busy? Are you busy? Not today. Are you busy? Normally? Are you retired? You're retired. Are you busy? Yes. We're supposed to be retired. Maybe that means that we're going to get tired again. <laughs> because we are retired. Like recycled. We thought we were going to stop. But we just don't know how. Our mind has been forever trained from the time you were born and grew up and 
getting older and older, you just seem to get busier and busier. Or else there's less time. Or else we can't see the time. <laughs> when I first became a nun, you know, you think you're going to take the robe and shave your head and go to a monastery and just throw the clock away. Time is not important. Then you find everything is timed. You can't even wear a watch, so we have it strapped, hidden in a pocket somewhere. You keep having to look. What time is it? Now it's breakfast, a meal, meditation, cleaning, working, meeting. And we have to be punctual, getting the robes. And we have to be mindful. You can get stressed because time, time, we're caught up with time. Because it's a community. We have to function even here. We're supposed to be letting go of everything. Let go of the world. The world is outside the door. And yet there's this clock that governs everything that we're doing. But there is no time. This is just a concept. So to not be busy in the busyness, at least we've simplified things here. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to drive your car. You don't have to have the keys to your house. The food is provided. There's a schedule. You just have to follow it. So there's certain things that have been simplified. Still, we're busy. We're not really busy. But the mind is busy because we feel that we, we're not able to just flow and let go and surrender to, not yet, to the process. This is called distraction and restlessness. And it also has a component of anxiety in it. But as we sit and focus on the breath, on the present moment, the breath is not what brings us freedom. The breath is just a skillful means. The meditation object, you might think that the breath must be some kind of holy thing. If you count your breaths or focus on your breath or notice your breathing, six million, ten million, or some certain magic number of times, suddenly you'll be free. It isn't that at all. It's the quality of our attention that we're developing. Just like the ocean, the ocean is quite shallow when it comes close to shore, isn't it? It's noisy too crashes into the shore and the waves suddenly become white-capped and crash and dissolve. But when you go out to sea and the ocean gets deeper, it's much quieter, isn't it? You go deep into the ocean, you don't even see the waves. It's just this depth. That's how it is with the mind. If we're on the surface of of the mind with thought, it's noisy. Is it noisy in the mind? Very noisy. But through this practice, we learn to dive deeper below the surface of thought. We have to go into the depth, the profundity of the heart, mind, to get to that silence. And then we learn to concentrate our attention so that we can penetrate through to the depths. And then once the mind gets 
so concentrated, we realize that we are that ocean. It's not two things. It's not something new to get or have, collect or acquire or possess or get points for. And then you want it again. Then the whole wanting process starts all over again. But to let all that go and to dive between or beneath thought and drop down into the essence of what we really are, which is pure. And that purity is concentrated. There's nothing else but that essence there. You only need a little bit to get the flavor. A little bit of purity, and we get that when we meditate for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days. Get that little bit. And the taste of that is exquisite. And it's like nothing else. Then we understand that that taste surpasses all other tastes and naturally we want more. But it's not the same kind of greed as the greed for the things of the world. The happiness of tasting that concentrated mind is beyond the ephemeral kinds of happiness that worldly experiences give us. We learn how to drop down into that place of depth and purity. It's not the ego concentrating itself, but it's just the mind resting for a moment. And if we can keep that up continuously, more and more, five minutes, ten minutes, one hour, then we experience something completely beyond the ordinary world, which gives us a sense of a freedom we may never have imagined possible, and a joy. It's not something that anyone can disturb or take away from you. And it's not yours. It doesn't belong to the me, the self, that doesn't even exist the false, illusory self that we believe we are. And that is what is worth committing ourselves to, training ourselves where there's no separation. What we really are is that anyway. We approach it from a dualistic perspective, but we're really just returning to the truth of what we are, to truth itself. So we use this language to understand and we begin with duality because we are divided conflicted separate and not whole but we're returning to wholeness the more that we can rest in that wholeness through releasing the mind of all the other perturbations that constantly afflict it then we are able to experience the totality, the non-duality, and go beyond the suffering that we think we have. And then we realize we don't have a problem. 
but we think we have a problem because our thought is what we believe and identify with then we have no ability to know that we are not that therefore there's no problem it's simple but it's quite difficult to grasp and very difficult to remember to let go the thought and drop down into the truth just rest in that so that's what's called samadhi or samma samadhi right concentration is just that the third level of training is training in wisdom and it happens naturally and it is proportional to the level of samadhi that we can develop without any understanding that we are caught in this realm of duality which obscures us from knowledge from wisdom from the knowing of what we really are as long as we are caught in that then whatever information we collect whatever knowledge we gain and now there is so much differentiation specialization of this worldly knowledge that will never free us from our dilemma from our duality never but if we are able to rest long enough in that state of non-duality then the wisdom that arises naturally it's not about exotic experiences it's an intuitive wisdom it's just the pure knowing what the complete purity of the mind naturally offers us if we reflect what we're really doing is we're rushing back to the world with our minds all the time we want to squeeze something out of the world that isn't there and then that gives us some kind of identity it's because we're caught up and trapped in that sense of i and experience i and the material world i and perception the self and what's happening to it as something separate the solid self that lives and enjoys and has a name and has a history and we paint it and dress it up and try to keep it looking what we think is great but inside we're squeezing out misery we have not understood we've never tasted that truth of what we are and never been able to sit in that presence then when we do the more we purify our mind and the longer we are able to sit in that stillness the world is w h i r l apostrophe b world it's whirling let it whirl the world will fall away and the wisdom will arise that we are not that world we're not the misery we are not the body so who dies when the body is dying 
then we have the fear we're dying but then when we learn that we're not the body we can rest in the transparency of this moment true wisdom is intuitive it comes from your belly I don't mean from eating organic food but it's an organic process to develop and cultivate that process so that wisdom comes naturally it's already there well if it's already there I can go home now the fact that you're here means that there's something that we're still trying to get we already have it but don't go home yet this is a precious opportunity so we have to understand how to understand that reminds me of my first teacher who was a great sage a solitary awakened one in India and he said if you cannot understand then at least you can understand that you don't understand that's the beginning and if other people don't understand you then at least you can understand that they don't understand and it doesn't matter why do we want to be understood this is ego please understand me he doesn't understand me and then we have a problem and that's the end of the relationship if only she would understand but if we can understand if we can stand under the moment in it drop down then wisdom in all its manifestations comes wisdom which has in it the unbinding of all problems and a peace that is beyond the whirling stopping a healthy body how do you get a healthy body you have to train but the training you do to get a healthy body is moving the mundane mind that in the world working mind that keeps us operating and that we need just to function has to keep moving but that consciousness that is able to awaken to the essence of what we are trains in the opposite way by stopping not by moving that's why nibbana is the cessation people think that cessation that's like the end like death but it's the ultimate stopping is the ability to stop and be what we are to stop everything else which won't stop can we stop the world no but we can stop our thoughts at least we can go beyond their superficiality so that we can taste keep tasting resting in the presence otherwise we have an occupied army in there what is that occupied army it's all your your worries and your troubles your problems your mortgage your bank account your 
yes, on the conventional level. But to understand that no matter what happens to us, to the body, to our physical world, we don't have to be miserable. We can develop this cessation of suffering, the stopping of the trouble. And then, once we've tasted that, internally we become healed. We can operate from awakened wisdom and complete harmlessness. Developing these three purities, body, speech, and thought, and then the second being the deepening, no longer thought, going beyond thought, to concentrating and dropping down into the place of rest. And then allowing the wisdom, turning and inclining the mind so that we naturally understand and certain truths manifest for us. These trainings, we have to undertake them and make a commitment. If we don't persevere, some of us who've been practicing for many, many years, we can vouch for it. It doesn't happen overnight. Now this modern age, everything is instant. It's getting more instant than it ever was. It used to be a miracle that you could put a tea bag in a cup and get a cup of tea. Now, pretty soon you'll be able to look at the cup and you'll get your cup of tea. Just blink. There's so much technology, it's, it's wondrous, it really is. But the most wondrous technology is right here, in this heart. And we can attest to the fact that it's not instant this practice. You can't retrain this poor, burdened me. You can't retrain that in, in a day, in a weekend, in a month. So we have to make a commitment. What do you want from life? And go for that. If you want the latest computer program, yes, you go for that. If you want freedom from any program, every program, but the freedom that will give you the highest happiness, the indestructible peace, then go for that. We do have to give up the things that prevent us from that wisdom, from knowing from resting in, from cultivating the purity. Sila Samadhi Panya, the purity, the, the balance of the heart, the equanimity and the wisdom, that training requires giving up all our attachments, one by one. Anyone here ever had a boat, sailed a boat? Do you know how barnacles stick to the hull of the boat? And if you have a boat that's covered with barnacles, you can't sail. You can't go anywhere. It'll drag through the water. And to get off the barnacles is very hard work. You have to scrape and scrub. You need special tools. And that's what we're doing here. Just 
apply yourself to this as if you were in a shipyard scraping the hull of your boat so that you can sail out into that ocean. You're away from the land, away from society, away from civilization. And it's so quiet. You have no nationality. Are you a Canadian? Well, on a conventional level. What if we all went out in a boat in the middle of the ocean? When I was 21, I sailed across the Atlantic. And when we were in the middle of the ocean, we were trying to tune in. We had this shortwave radio because we had to navigate. I remember we couldn't, there was a stormy period, we couldn't tune in to any radio station. And I thought, we're not in any country. It was the first time in my life I had not been in a country. Who does the ocean belong to? This journey inward is taking us to a place of no country, no nationality, no identity, no form, the formless. It's emptiness. It's deathless. More than not having a country, you don't have to have a name, a date of birth, an astrological sign, a gender. It's the ultimate peace. But to realize, and we think in linear terms, we have to get in a boat and get a map out and then traverse, in a sense, but only metaphorically speaking, the inner journey is, we have nothing. We're barefoot and empty-handed. Whether you're wearing a robe, trousers, and a shirt, it doesn't matter. We all make that journey. And then we have to let the boat go. Even the boat we don't attach to. We say, yeah, you've got to scrape off those barnacles. But in the end, there's no boat, there's no barnacles this body which is our vehicle we also have to give it up and then that death moment is a gateway it's another opportunity to realize that essence but to be able to use even the death moment as a gateway we need to be practicing and training the mind to let go of everything year by year before we're ready to let go we think it's all wrong we shouldn't be dying We should live forever. Well, yeah, what if we did live forever? Is that what we want? I don't think so. We'd all be bald. Or would you want to have your hair forever? Well, technology will arrange that one day. But I still want to shave it off. This is only a symbol for shaving off the barnacles. Coming here is an invitation to leave behind and set sail. Set sail for that. No land, no country. 
unknown. It's unknown. It's not of this realm, really. It's another dimension. And this silence, the stillness of the mind, is the way to discover it. Just to trust. And whatever comes, treat that as a blessing. So it's not to think, where am I in this journey? But just to keep practicing. So I've said enough. Let's do it. Don't have to take notes. The most important book to read is the heart. And that's why we have to be so silent. Then you can write the books.